Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Because we are in the Shabbat reading that is between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we are in the book of Deuteronomy, always around this parsha, Vayelech, or we're sometimes in Ha'azinu, uh, but we're always coming to the end of the book of Deuteronomy this time of year at Shabbat Shuva, the Shabbat of return, from which comes the word Teshuva, right? Repentance. So repentance for us is about return, which is already a theological statement that if the word for repenting means returning, then it means Somehow, the state one is in after one atones is the normative state to which we are always trying to return. So rather than an orientation that says we are born sinners, right, and the work is always to to deal with that existential sin setting, uh, Judaism says we are born tihorah, we are born pure. And we have the capacity always to return to that state. We are born with the capacity both to listen to the Yetzer HaTov, the good inclination, as well as the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. And it is always a dance between both of those. And it's a pull um, between both of those all the time. And that the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, is responsible for us achieving anything. That if we didn't get a little jealous of what David has we might not work quite as hard as we do to achieve in our lives. That lust, right, leads us to create families. And for some people, it means that's how you have children. (laughs) For others of us, it means scheduling many expensive appointments. But um, be that as it may. So the Yetzir Hara is not... Just raw. It's not just about evil. It's about that pull towards what can be damaging, what can be selfish, what can be ways we don't want to behave. And much of Jewish tradition, says uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, much of Jewish tradition is about taking those appetites and those impulses and using them and harnessing them and shaping them and pushing them towards purposes that we find moral and ethical and valuable and healing. And that's the work. This work of this season is to figure out what it is we need to do in order to correct for the ways we've gone over to the side of Yetzir Hara too frequently, either habitually or just one time in a really big way? Uh, and what is it we need to do to, to pull back towards the other side of the Yetzer HaTov, using those same inclinations for the good? And that is the work of this season. newspaper headline, Rabbi says evil is good. <laughs> Reuben, I like it. <laughs> it might be my next KI Quarterly article. <laughs> Fox News would say evil is everybody else, right, (laughs) other than us. All right, we're at chapter 31 of the book of Deuteronomy. And as we did last week, so that you can hear the 
voice of the Deuteronomist. I'm going to have someone read and not interrupt uh, quite so frequently. We can we can unpack some of the text uh, after that, but so that you hear the the grandeur of the Deuteronomist imagining this huge. Uh, recovenanting ceremony, and now the last scene in the life of Moshe, the great prophet, the great leader, who turns out is just as mortal as the rest of us. What paragraph was So chapter 31, verse 1. 12.37 in the green book. 37. All right, someone want to read? Moses went and spoke these things to all Israel. He said to them, I am now 120 years old. I can no longer be active. Moreover, the Lord has said to me, you shall not go across yonder Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over before you, and he himself will wipe out those nations from your path, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, uh, kings of the Amorites, and to their countries when he wiped them out. The Lord will deliver them up to you, and you shall deal with them in full accordance with the instructions that I have enjoined upon you. Be strong and resolute. Be not in fear or in dread of them. For the Lord your God himself marches with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called Yahshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and resolute, for it is you who shall go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them, and it is you who shall apportion it to them. And the Lord himself will go before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not and be not dismayed. Moses wrote down this teaching and gave it to the priests, sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses instructed them as follows. Every seventh year, the year set for remission at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose, you shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. Gather the people, men, women, children, and the strangers in your communities, that they may hear and so learn to revere the Lord your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Their children, too, who have not had the experience, shall hear and learn it to revere the Lord your God as long as they live in the land that you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. So Moshe is coming to the end of the great book of Deuteronomy. So when it says here that Moshe went and spoke all these things to Israel, the Devarim Ha'ele, presumably, uh, are the things written here in the book of Deuteronomy. Other commentators want to suggest it's the entire Torah that Moshe has now imparted to the people. Maybe it's just this section of Deuteronomy. We're not sure. doesn't seem to really matter to the tradition. What's important is we, Moshe's drawing to a close his last address to the people. And he says that he's 120 years old. And uh, the translation that Bert just read says, I can no longer what? Be active. Be active. A terrible translation. Um, respectfully, I suggest. <laughs> like it's not terrible. It just is. We, we get told in other places that Moshe still is clear. He's still lucid. He's still 
he's still present then what's what does this mean that he he can no longer be active what it says literally in the hebrew is he's not able anymore latzet to go out vulavo and to come in and god says uh and it says god said to me you shall not cross this jordan river the rabbis take this idiomatic expression i'm not able to go out and come in anymore and do fantastically wonderful things with it. Maybe it meant originally he can't move around anymore. He's not active. He's frail. He's nearing the end of his physical capacities. The rabbis don't choose to go there. The rabbis want to stay with this, I can no longer go out and come in business and write beautiful commentary on what does this mean exactly and rarely do they say it has anything to do with Moshe's capacities. Rather, it has to do with the situational needs and Moshe being unable to fulfill them now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, so remember that in Torah we get... Uh, longer lives than we normally see. You know, Sarah is 99 when she has Yitzchak. So like they're, they're mythic numbers. And, and this was a tradition in the ancient world that when you looked back to your mythic ancestors, you were talking about much longer periods of time. Um, post, post-Diluvian, they are shorter. Anti-Diluvian, before the flood narrative, they are 700 years. So um, post Diluvian, it's shorter, but it's still long. 120 seems to be a number of true completion. Reuben and I don't think it's bizarre. Right? (laughs) Our octogenarian... How long did Methuselah live? Methuselah, a long time, presumably. Um, But it is true that among our most spry, mentally spry students, right, are... Reuben, who is now 90... I forget. Something. <laughs> 90 something. And Mickey, a uh, hale and hearty... I forget Al. 86. And yeah, Al, who's 91. Right? These are our... This, this right here is proof that... Uh, that it does not necessarily mean anything about Moshe's vitality that that's why he has to stop being the leader. Right, we have our sages here who, who are perfect models of having true capacity to lead in terms of thinking through things and inspiring people and sharing their wisdom and their knowledge and challenging us. That doesn't seem, the rabbis don't think that's the issue. They know people like Al and Reuben and Mickey and Sarah. They, they know those people. So they choose not to go to, it means he's infirm or frail. So where do they go? He's no longer able, let's say it, to go out to lead, right? To, to do what has to, to be done when you're taking your people out there. Vilavo. And to come in, to come in where? To come into the holy of holies to speak to God. Why does that change the meaning? Because for the rabbis, it doesn't mean he can't. It means it's no longer his job. He's no longer the appropriate one, let's say, to lead 
vilavo and to be the one going in to speak to God. His time has passed. There's another issue. Uh, he knows he's not going to go into the across the river into Jordan. Uh, so he's uh, he's got to select new leadership because he's not going to be there. So of course, right. So that's what we see next is he's going to need to to pick a new leader. Right. So. <clears throat> So, so even before we get to him being, him saying, I'm not crossing over, we get an existential statement by the narrator, right? That he's unable to, let's say, bravo, or Moshe's self-identifying as not being able to do that. And to Mickey's point, it doesn't seem to be because he couldn't. Because he follows with, it's God who will cross over with you. Not me. God is going to do that God's self. But he, he already knew he wasn't. Right? Correct. So he, isn't he sort of, it seems to me he could just be making this statement like, you know, hey, I've been told it isn't going to be me. I, it can't be me. It can't be me. So that seems to be the sense the rabbis want to give this, I can't go out and come in anymore. Not, he was no longer active, right? It's that it can't be me. I've been told. Who, I've been told it's not going to be me. Who goes out and comes in anymore, fulfilling those roles? And Moshe assures them he's still a good leader. He assures them God is going to be with you. Just because I'm not there anymore. Because remember what happens to this people when Moshe's not there. What do they tend to do when Moshe's not around? Make idols. Make idols. Unravel. They don't behave well when Moshe's not around. And so Moshe assures them, I won't be there, but God, God's self is going with you and will right, pave the way for you and will wipe out your enemies before you. And therefore, you should settle down, right? Be okay with what's about to happen. Be strong, therefore, and resolute. Chazak ve'amatz. Chizku ve'imtzu. Be chazak, strong. Ve'amatz. Be brave. Be um, courageous. And we say this to this day. We say to people, chazak ve'amatz. This is a very generous thing that he's doing. Talk to me about that, Sarah. Because he's being realistic about his capacities. And he's not hogging the leadership until his last breath, but he's ensuring a transition. So he knows when to retire. Yes. (laughs) That's right. And this thing about going in and and coming out, I I think in English it would be, I can't run around anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Something's changed. Be at, you know, running around helpless when they go out. 
and that it won't be me anymore who assures, right, who's going to be there to be sure it all works out. It's on you now. So this is the launching of the adolescent into the world. Moshe won't be there anymore if they piss God off again. If they really tick God off, Moshe's not going to be there to make that better, to make that okay, to stand between God and the people and fix it. They are, he's telling them, it's on you now, and I trust that that's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And that act of launching is an act of love and its own act of courage and strength and trust and is hard. It's good parenting. Isn't you, that what we do when we get married? When my daughter got married, I said to her, God be with you. God bless you. You are on your own now. You answer to your husband. Hopefully. Isn't, isn't there also a sense here that they're going to succeed, but Moses is saying it is God who is going to bring the power, not me? There's a sense of humility here. Mm-hmm. You have to remember when he says God is going to pass before you, that you're somehow going to be blessed with success in what you're doing that is beyond man-made. Which is what he's always tried to tell them, Right. He's, he spent his life trying to tell them, you're okay. Yeah, he could, he could have just said how wonderful he is at this point. See, I brought you here. <laughs> Look I what I've done. I got you all set up, yeah. and now you're going to succeed because I taught you, because I'm a successful businessman. All right. <laughs> Wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong guy. <clears throat> Margo. Being aware of, well, the earlier reading, I think that's your um, being aware of our own limitations and knowing, knowing that we're not going to be here and hoping that we have passed on <coughs> strength and hope that our children have. And so exactly. Exactly. And so what happens at that moment? What, what happens at that moment of recognizing our limitations, recognizing it's time, recognizing they need to be launched, and that Moshe, if it's because he knows he's not going, whatever the reason, Moshe is a responsible, loving leader who has an understanding of what the people need. And so he says, he, it says he calls to Yoshua, and said to him in front of all the people in front of all the people this seems to be critical that Moshe understands that Yeshua needs his appointment of Yeshua as his successor for the people to have full trust in that leader Moshe could have done this in his tent Moshe could have said, sign here, 
Right? Here's the agreement. Here's your compensation. None. Here's your compensation. Surus. <laughs> from the Jewish people. Um, you know, and, and done the deal and just appointed him his successor or called the elders. The wisdom here is that he did it in front of all the people so that it is extraordinarily clear that Moshe has full faith in Yoshua as being the one who is meant to take them the next part of the journey. It's no longer Moshe's job. He's not the one. He's not suited to take this generation on the journey that they have to follow, which is fighting for the land, setting up a new life in the land, a new civilization in the land. It, it also stops a lot of revolutionaries within the community. Sure, right? It shuts down any kind of stirring of doubts, which could lead to insurrection. Absolutely. And so he says the same thing to Yeshua that he says to the people. Because we remain a democracy, don't we? That truly is the message of Deuteronomy. What we read last week in Nitzavim, you stand here today, kulchem, all y'all. Every single one of you, including children, including the stranger, you all stand here. It is a democracy in that sense. Sure, there's leadership and tiers of leadership and authority. Yes, absolutely. And ultimately, this is a community of every individual being considered as created in the image of the divine. Revelation was given to every single person. And we see it here again that he says not only to the people, be strong and resolute. He says the same thing to Yeshua, so that Yeshua is no different than the people. It's not like, okay, the people need to be courageous, but you, Joshua, you are the paragon of courage. I don't need to say that to you. He says to their leader the same thing he says to them. Chazak velmatz. Be strong and be of good courage, as we often see it translated. For it is you who will go with this people into the land that God swore to their fathers to give them, and it is you who shall apportion it to them. And God, God's self, will go before you and will be with you, will not fail or forsake you. Fear not, lo tira, and don't be dismayed. Moshe writes Torah and gives it to the Kohanim so that they can carry it for the people. And Moshe instructs them as follows, that every seventh year, the year set for remission, the Shemitah year, we've read about the Shemitah year, in the Shemitah year, at what time? Bechag HaSukot. Bechag HaSukot. At the time of Sukkot, what's going to happen? When all the people come to appear before God, once every seven years, every Israelite had to come on Sukkot. Other times it's just the men the that had to bring the fruit and, and the produce and come to the temple. Once every seven years, everybody had to come. And on that one, that time where everybody is there on Sukkot, because that's what it means, the place that God will choose, right? That That's the temple. You shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. Again, a democratizing effect. It's not just for the priests. You all are going to be at the temple, all of you, and you will hear this teaching because it is for all of you to know. 
Gather the people, men, women, children, and the strangers in your communities that they may hear and so learn to revere Adonai your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Their children too, who have not had the experience, shall hear and learn to revere Adonai your God as long as they live in the land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This time of Sukkot, everybody who's there hears all of these laws about how we are to build a society, how we, they're reminded of what it is they're supposed to do to be a holy community. This is what we still do on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We still have 3,000 people choose to show up, still, to report to the temple around this time of year in order to be reminded of the teaching, in order to be reminded how it is we're supposed to live and to ask the question, are we living up to that as a community? Are we living up to that as individuals? It is a very moving thing. Some rabbis get all crazy that, how come there are all these Jews here this time of year? Where are they on Shabbos? Where are they at adult education? Like, a lot of rabbis go shry at this time of year. Look at how full it is. How come it's not... Which is just, which is just useless, if you ask me. Not that we shouldn't be always asking what what could we do that more Jews would choose to engage, but be that as it may, looking out and seeing that three thousand Jews and our allies and the strangers who dwell among us, meaning those who aren't Jews but choose to be here anyway, that that many people still choose to come back to the sanctuary. To hear the teaching, to hear the liturgy, to hear shofar, to fast, to ask the question, how are we doing once we're reminded about how we're supposed to be? That is an incredibly powerful thing. Thousands of years later, we still show up in the fall and ask these hard questions. That is a fantastic thing. We still read the Torah. And we still read the Torah. Every year. We still read this. That says Moshe, sit down and said every seven years you're going to read this. this. That's what we do. Still. That's what we're doing right here, right now. And every Friday morning. At this time of Sukkot, this time of giving over our first fruits, this time of uh, encouraging compassion. One author, I, Rabbi Shai Held, wrote that at, at Sukkot, we are about compassion. We're about understanding that we are a community. And the reason we're bringing our fruits in the first place is because we need to share it with the people whose crops failed this year and last year and the year before. We need to share it with those who serve on behalf of the people, in this case, the priests and the Levites, those who don't have any land, who don't have any real possessions because their work is about keeping the relationship between the people and God healthy. We need to share because we're a community that sympathy is vertical. Empathy is horizontal. And that the whole point of Sukkot is to develop communal Empathy to understand that we stand here together and it belongs to all of us communally. 
Rita. It's interesting that we read this before Yom Kippur, but we're moving right into Sukkot. We're not going to dwell on our sins and everything else. We have to move forward and think about what we're going to do next year. And, you know, a lot of scholars, I've said this before, a lot of scholars don't hook Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur together. They hook Yom Kippur to Sukkot. It doesn't make a lot of sense to start the year and 10 days later do this Day of Atonement business. That does not make any sense. And if you look at the commandment for Yom Shu'ah, what does it say? We just read it in Shul. We just read it out of the Torah. In what month? In the seventh month. In the seventh month, on the first day, you will have Yom Shru'ah. So that means it can't have been Rosh Hashanah. If it's the seventh month, it's not the first month. And if it's not the first month, it's not Rosh Hashanah. You'll notice it doesn't say Rosh Hashanah in the Torah. It says Yom Shru'ah, a day of blowing on the beginning of the month. Why? Because Yom Kippur is coming. So that month that is the month that that the Day of Atonement and Sukkot are happening, you need to blow the shofar to get people ready. Yo, people, it's Tishrei. Listen up, get ready. It's time to do your preparation for Yom Kippur. This is the month of Yom Kippur, so count your days carefully because it's coming. That's the Yom Shru'ah. has nothing to do with the beginning of the year. So we just get an alert Yom Shru'ah, woo, that it's Tishrei. Ten days later comes the big day, which is the Day of Atonement. Why? So that we're done with all of that when Sukkot comes. That the whole point of Tishrei is Sukkot. That's the point. That's the goal. Is coming to Sukkot, to this gathering, clean, Repaired, both individually with God and as a community so that we're ready to share what we have and party for a week. That's what happened. They partied, right? Remember the priests lit their old underwear on fire and made torches and it was a party. And this was the celebration that you had enough of a harvest that was put away and stored that you weren't going to starve over the winter. It's a party. The work is done. In an agrarian society, the work is done at Sukkot. It's Thanksgiving. Everything's done. Nothing else we can do. Now we just eat what's preserved, right? Or bake those potatoes because they keep what you... And that's what you do all through the winter. So this was the big party. We made it. We're not going to starve. And all the work is done. And Yom Kippur is about cleaning everything up so you can go to that party free. And truly celebrate being alive as you go into the winter. That's the real arc of these holy days. So we've, we've turned that around. This is now Rosh Hashanah because the Babylonian calendar won. And the new year now starts in the fall for us. So now Yom Shru'ah becomes Rosh Hashanah. And so we've tied Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to be our big celebration and have lost, on some level, Sukkot as a meaningful engagement. Again, some people gushry about that. You know, what about Sukkot? It was the original. Okay, fine. As Reconstructionists, okay, so Sukkot is not as meaningful. We're not an agrarian society anymore. If you're living in Duluth, Minnesota, I have a picture. 
I decided Eliana was born on the fourth day of Sukkot. So I decided, you should have seen me that Yom Kippur. <laughs> so um, I decided this is going to be really meaningful. She's going to have a really meaningful Hebrew birthday. So we're going to build a sukkah every year so she, she can connect. Da, 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 da. And so we built, we got the kit, we got the whole thing, we got the drill, we're ready. And right after Yom Kippur, the first thing we did was the mitzvah of starting to build the sukkah. We build the sukkah, Ellie's little little thing, and and I go to take pictures on the first day of Sukkot, and we go out, and there's this much snow on the table and on each chair, and I have a picture of Eliana in her jacket, her parka, and her hat, and her mittens, and her snow boots in the sukkah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I think... We're done with this brilliant idea I had of connecting her to So, what, why do I bring that up? Is that meaningful to dwell in a sukkah when it's snowing? I don't think so. It certainly had very little power or meaning in our, right? The point of Sukkot is that if it's an agrarian holiday and that works, then it makes sense that it developed that way, that it stayed that way. It makes a lot of sense that it doesn't work for a lot of people in our society today. And that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur being tied together is meaningful. The beauty of it is that people are still coming and gathering to do the work of Yom Kippur and this season. And what I'd love for us to do, I've said this before, the only thing I think that is missing from having arranged it now this way is that once Yom Kippur is over, we miss the party. Like, we've done all this work, right? Where's the communal celebration of that? And it doesn't need to be Sukkot, but I wish we had a great big breakfast blowout party, right? Like, that we're done, we did the work, we're starting over, yay, now let's celebrate. Where's the festival part? They used to have uh, Yom Kippur dances years ago. See? That makes so much sense to me. So now let's, now let's relax and have fun together, now that we've done the really hard work together. So that's the only thing I feel. Sukkot is becoming more uh, important, uh, particularly in Southern California, where we don't have to were you not wearing a parka? My son-in-law's sukkah that puts up every year is not quite big enough to have a party in, but it's there. We do eat in it. Yes. Just an historical question. I'm curious about it. They read it every seven years. When the this was written, Namely redacted, let's say. Mm-hmm. Was it? Was it? Was there actually anything written, even on stone, or, or was it all oral? And the point of the read it every seven years was about the only way to communicate it to the whole people because they didn't 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 have, have written, written in any way. Well, presumably they didn't have a lot of written copies, right? That would they have been have a very hard and expensive. But but there, it seems that they're what he's instructed to write it down. So it, it seems yes, and um, and Ezra and Nehemiah also mandated on the return from the first exile, mandated a reading of the Torah, which sounds suggests it's a and the scroll of Deuteronomy was found. Right, remember that Deuteronomy was but the I scroll of later, you know, as opposed to at the time they're really talking about their 
it really was still oral. It's, I it's, know how long it was oral. It's, an, it's a written tradition already. Okay. The, the Deuteronomist has lots of documents in front of her as she's writing. As he's putting this together, there's lots of documents, and there's a lot of cutting and pasting. But that's much later than the first four books that, he, that they're talking about. Right. There's, there's also cutting and pasting in the other books. The earliest sources are also cutting and pasting. This is how we get the two versions put together of 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, no, it's actually a different amount of time. There's seven animals that were kosher, seven pairs of animals that were kosher. No, there's only two of every animal. So... That's already cutting and pasting documents that were already written versions that are already around. Two stories of creation of man and woman. Yeah, exactly. This teaching is the Torah? So we're unclear if it means Deuteronomy or if it means the entire Torah. Well, I don't get any words that suggest either one. Right. Well, the Hebrew says Torah. The Hebrew just says this Torah. But but Torah means teaching at that time. But we now know we now when we hear Torah, we now think this. Back then, it meant generic teaching. What do they say? They say that Moses wrote the Torah. Is this where he would have written it if he wrote it? Well, there's there's lots of scholarly discussion about when and where. Some say on Sinai he got the whole thing. The entirety of it. Moses wrote down this teaching, and the teaching in English here is capitalized. Uh, but, but we really don't know what that means. Correct. Well, we're assuming it's something that's here. Now, how extensive it is is the question. I think it must mean something he's just said to them. This teaching means this, not that. This teaching, it's something, it's something Tied to this, the question is, is it just this, meaning Deuteronomy, or this part of Deuteronomy, or is it the entire Torah? That we don't know. For me, the significance is not so much what, which of these many teachings is it was, but the fact that this is something that is to be read and shared by everybody and be public and be repeated and kept alive. Correct. Which, which is very different from many other cultures. Correct. And what the king was supposed to have a copy of this. Yes. The king was supposed to write a Torah, not just have a copy. And so are we, aren't we? The king was supposed to write, uh, the rabbis are going to extrapolate, but the king was supposed to write a Torah. It takes a long time to write a Torah. So what does that mean? What is it really mandating? Keep the king out of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Keep the king daily sitting down to remember what it is the king is really supposed to be about. Right? What if our president had to write a copy of the Constitution every day? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? Right? You need a lot of pen. All right, so let's quickly go through this just because I want you to see what's happening and then we'll, we'll move to how it applies to Shabbat Shuvah. You are soon to lie with your fathers. This people will thereupon go astray after the alien gods in their midst in the land they're about to enter. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I made with them. Then my anger will flare up against them, and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. They shall be ready prey, and many evils and troubles shall before them. And they shall say on that day, Surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Yet I will keep my countenance hidden on that day because of all the evil they have done in turning to other gods. Therefore, write down this poem 
Interesting. It's called Shira here. Write down this Shira and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths in order that this poem may be my witness against the people of Israel. When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey that I promised on oath to their fathers, that they eat their fill, grow fat, and turn to other gods and serve them, spurning me and breaking my covenant. He writes this down and teaches it to the Israelites and charges Yoshua, be strong and resolute, chazak ve'amatz, for you shall bring the Israelites into the land that I promised them on oath, and I will be with you. Moshe is projecting ahead to what's coming. The poem is the next parsha. Ah, so we don't know. God is projecting ahead. Ah, yes. Mo- Moshe's talking what God is giving him to say. All oh, right, you're right, you're right. Um, and then Moshe says to them, right, this is... God is actually predicting what he's going to, how he's going to behave. So for an um, so remember this is written, Reuben. Part part of the important thing to remember: this is written to a people who has experienced destruction and exile. This is post-exilic. How does that help us understand this? That's how they understood the exile. That's how they understood what happened to them: was that they went astray, they got fat and lazy and arrogant and selfish and greedy and started worshiping other things and that is why God got angry and destroyed the temple and banished them from the land of Israel. So this is written by people who have already experienced that. And and God is saying, then my anger will flare up. Right. Because the people have to try to understand what happened. How could it happen that the Almighty was defeated, God forbid. It has to be that the Almighty decided we deserved it. Yeah, but my problem is, on, why is, in the, in the future, why is he... Because it's not written in the future. I mean, it's written in the future. It's put back, this scene is written after they've been living in Israel and the temple's been destroyed. Okay. It's written then. Okay. Then they put it I back. I understand... Two tracks. We're always working on two tracks. Torah history and lived history. In Torah history, they're in the desert. In lived history, they're way ahead of that. The temple's been destroyed, right? And they retroject this to an earlier time in history with, with looking forward. It's to explain what has happened. So it's a recounting. It would be as if we have George Washington crossing the Delaware saying, we are going to build a great nation, and then they're going to get lazy, and they're going to have a huge discrepancy between rich and poor, and then people will become presidential candidates simply because they're cabillionaires, and it will be a time of shame for the people, right? So this, it's the... It's being it's being put in the mouth of George Washington, but it's written by the people who are observing events today. Yes, that's exactly what we have here. 
All right, so you have a piece here by Carol Oakes. I want you to drop down to from the beginning of Elul. From the beginning of Elul, we have been preparing for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which ritually is a preparation for death. Right? That she's tying this to Moshe, also preparing for death. Some of us actually dress in the kittel that will be our shroud, meaning our burial shroud. We do not bathe or eat or engage in sex. What is this annual rehearsal of death really about? The holy day of Yom Kippur is not about death, but about rebirth. We let die the many ways we have grown callous and have been spiritually asleep. Then these 25 hours of intense introspection, repentance, and physical affliction bring about liberation, a fresh start, a year new not only in time, but also in the opportunity to start again. So that the point of this death coming before rebirth is not about death is the end, but rather about this rehearsal of death is a way to kind of shake us out of our complacency, out of our habits, out of our numbness. Drop down to the last paragraph on that page. Three times in the portion we read, chazak v'amatz, be strong and resolute. And in verse 31, 6, we read, for it is indeed the eternal your God who marches with you. God will not fail or forsake you. By ourselves, we cannot find rebirth. We imprison ourselves. We are tempted to accept our not-so-bad self. But the repeated verse gets our attention. Chazak ve'amatz. Be strong and resolute. And before we can once again protest our weakness, we are assured it is God who marches with you and will not fail or forsake you. What has become clear to us over the course of the 10 days of repentance is that we can't do it alone. Whether we locate God in our most authentic core in the interaction with the Jewish community or in the chain of tradition that makes our personal trials part of the story of the Jewish people, we need to relate our struggle with our peoples in order to cross over to the promised land. We can't just sit in our living rooms and hope to get to a place of here's what's actually going on this year. We need to relate that to a a bigger cycle. It's the time we all do this as a community, together, the confession, together, It's hard to just sit and kind of go, okay, wait, where have I really messed up? Not that we're not supposed to be reflecting on that. We absolutely are. It's bigger than just each one of us, is what she's saying. We need God. We need each other. We need this season. We need to come together to do this. Rabbi, going back to what you started to read, Mm -hmm. beginning of Elul, we are preparing for... uh, which is ritually a preparation for death. I don't understand that. So on Yom Kippur, the reason we observe the way we do, that we fast, we don't eat, we don't drink, we don't anoint ourselves, we don't have sex, those are all things that attach us to life. So we stop all of those things that attach us to life and we wear a burial shroud. We actually rehearse death. It is a day that we are ritually dying. And the idea is because we take life for granted and someday we really are going to die. Someday we really are going to wear that shroud. And so the idea is to shake us up to say, so how is it you want to live in this next year given that we don't know? We need to die and 
when we might die. And so that this process of a ritual death is really about rebirth into a new year and doing it differently. The people who practice this practice it before Yom Kippur. We're preparing for Yom Kippur. From the beginning, from Moshe Hashanah, through the 10 days of repentance, we're preparing for this death rehearsal. And and people actually don't bathe and... Just on Yom Kippur. Not for 10 days. Not for the whole 10 days. <laughs> that's, that's like reading it bad. No worries. I think that I, the way I read it, they're doing this all during no. that. No, we're preparing to, to do it on that. Where are they wearing the shroud? It is the service itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our like, clergy is in white and so are the Torahs. Does that go on today? I've, I've worn a shroud on Yom Kippur every year um, at a store yes they do a Judaica store sells a kittle men wear it at their wedding they wear it at the Seder and they wear it at Yom Kippur so you go to the Judaica store and you order a kittle so what you wore on Yom Kippur is not that I mean, you know, the Rosh Hashanah was not that right the one you've seen me in here yeah, on Yom Kippur oh, that, that I tie at the waist right. with the... So it's not just white, it's different. It's just white shroud. Right. But some of the some congregants who do come all dressed in white, they're they're not wearing shrouds, but they're but to some extent... The, Symbolically. It, it's, it's the, the white and like the white sneakers and everything, that's symbolic of being white and being shrouded. Correct. So we white is the color of death for us. You you bury people in white. Purity. We're like the angels, right? We're in that state of first of all, it's democratizing. Everyone's in white, and everyone gets it that we're the democratizing factor is we're all human and we're all going to die. That's kind of the point. Uh, And the white sneakers are actually about we don't wear leather. So I always find it funny when people wear white leather sneakers to to shul. It's like. Um, it's not about comfort. It's about right that we don't wear leather, and so what? What most people have that's white and not leather are canvas tennis shoes, and it does help you stand as much as we have to stand while you're fasting. Look at the next one by Melanie Kelly. Shabbat Shuvah, Vayelech. This is called Shabbat Shuvah. Because it's the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It comes from the opening verse of the Haftarah from Hosea this week, which says, Shuva Yisrael, return, right in the command form. Shuva, return. So this is Shabbat Shuva. What I love about this, it's just very cute. Look at that paragraph starting with looking down at my keyboard. Looking down at my keyboard, I notice a strange large key to my right. It's bigger than most of the others and has two descriptors on it. One says enter, the other return. Both words describing the same key. This made me think, what is the relationship between entering and returning? What is the connection we have as a people when we stand at the cusp or boundary between one state and another, between moving back and going forth? When Hosea asks us, Shuva. Is he inviting us to reminisce about a distant time in our past? Or is he asking us to use our past to fashion our future? 
so I won't look at my keyboard the same way uh, for the next several weeks and months, right? That 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 button that says enter and return is going to be for me a spiritual reminder is what I'm typing about entering and returning or do I need to hit delete, 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 take a deep breath and start again? Um, this whole process, I mean, this is all new to me, but this whole process feels like uh, for a period of time you're doing a cleansing in all levels. I mean, and check up, please, or d, 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 d. And when you finish that, you're back to point zero and you wear white as a symbol of purity and new life, I mean, death and rebirth. And rebirth is you cleansed and you're new, so you're back to point zero. Does yes, that yes, that's the goal. That is the goal, so that we get to start again. Right. We get to start over. It's hitting the reset button. Right. Exactly. Let's look at the poem of Rabbi Rachel Berenblatt, known on the internet as the Velveteen Rabbi, because she's been writing and publishing since she was in rabbinical school. So those of you who know the book, The Velveteen Rabbit, right? When do I get to go and run and play with the real rabbits? So hers is the Velveteen Rabbi. In parentheses, when will I get to run and play with the real rabbis? And now it says the Velveteen Rabbi running and playing with the real rabbis because she has graduated. But it's um, she, her stuff always is really it always moves me to think, always. So um, it's a great thing to just as a default go check the Velveteen Rabbi on anything. Uh, she has a beautiful Passover Haggadah that she's happy for you to print and use or pieces of it. It's absolutely beautiful. All right. So the poem. Somebody, um, Sarah, read for us the poem by Elech. That day, Moses wrote down this poem and taught it to the Israelites. This poem aims to cover everything that could ever happen to you. It includes instructions for celebrating festivals, the manumission of slaves, building altars, the punishment of disobedient children, descriptions of how the cosmos came to be, and how our holiest sites should recapitulate the orderly progression of God's attributes. This poem seems to have all the answers, but it doesn't even have all the questions. This poem doesn't tell you how to feel when you're sitting in shul and wishing the sun would break through the clouds. This poem contradicts itself often. This poem has a lot to say about television, the internet, the stories we tell ourselves about who we really are in the world, though it says all of these things obliquely. Those who understand, understand. That's the way this poem shakes out. <laughs> this poem is written in intricate code, each letter secretly a number and each number symbolic of something incredibly important, though we've forgotten at least half of the meanings we once upon knew by heart. This poem weighs heavy in our shoulders. It ties our insides in mystical knots. Sometimes this poem tastes like wildflower honey and other times like homemade ink dissolved in water that hasn't been stirred. 
This poem is old-fashioned. This poem is being written right this second. Each breath, a new letter on the unrolling page. Wow. So she's playing with the idea that, that this is called this Shira, and she, in her mind, her commentary is that the Shira is the entire Torah. And so what this poem means, this whole crazy thing of Torah, which I think is just, this is a beautiful reflection on what Torah is. And those of us who gather every week know that sometimes it tastes like wildflower honey, and other times like homemade ink in water that hasn't been stirred. And that it has something to say about television and the internet, if obliquely. (laughs) And that um, we mine it for meanings that we once upon a time knew by heart. It's just a, and that it's being written by you, by us, right now. May we go into the new year ready to hit return and enter. May we go into the new year with courage and conviction that we have the capacity to change. May we go into this holiday of Yom Kippur and Sukkot more deeply connected to our community, to each other, to empathy. May it bring us to a place of being more willing and ready to share because this is truly how we get the most out of this journey that for each of us should only be Admeva Estream to 120. Good Shabbos. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.